Hello, and welcome to the Lancet Digital Health Podcast. I'm Diana Samuel, a senior editor of the journal. Today, we are going to be talking about a new research article published in the journal, which describes a machine learning framework that was used to predict hospital onset COVID-19 infections at an individual level using data from the UK and Switzerland, and showed that including patient contact networks in the framework can enable more accurate prediction of individual risk of infection. Joining me now to discuss this further is an author of the paper, Ashley Mile. Ashley is a PhD student at Imperial College London studying applied mathematics. In particular, he uses mathematical models to investigate the transmission dynamics of hospital-associated infections and generates data-driven prevention strategies. So welcome, Ash. Thank you for joining me. Hi, great to be here. So to kick off, can you briefly sum up the history that prompted this study and describe it for our audience? The setting for this study was infection prevention control and specifically around how outbreaks of diseases that are acquired in hospital, how they spread. And in IPC, infection prevention control, these are usually managed by um, certain interventions and they're guided by identifying risk factors, which allow you to say, is this patient at a higher or lower risk of acquiring some infection whilst in hospital? Based on this information, then you can target resources to the high-risk patients and prevent onward transmission. Now, the status quo is that these risk factor frameworks, they actually ignore the contact-mediated nature of many infectious diseases, i.e. how important is being in contact with someone and being in contact with someone that was infectious for picking up these pathogens. So in the study was, say... Can you use this information to improve how risk factors are identified and how well you're predicting cases of acquisition in hospital? And to try and investigate this, what we did, we looked at um, COVID-19 spreading in hospitals, namely hospital onset COVID-19 infections. And when reconstructing networks of how every patient has interacted in a hospital, we noticed these cases of hospital onset COVID-19 infections they were appearing in very predictable areas of the contact network and um, quantifiably close to known infectious cases in that network. So we tried to design a framework in this study that allows one to operationalize this information and in that it could be also be flexible to include further information specifically around contact networks and their dynamics, how they're changing over time. And what this really produced then was bringing this information around the contact-mediated nature of different diseases into a risk prediction framework that could be used by clinicians to make better decisions around patient management in the context of stopping infection spreading in hospitals. That's great. That's really interesting. And what were some of the key findings? So the biggest one that we found um, was that there was actually like a really large amount of predictive power in these networks of patient contacts. So what we looked at, we didn't just look at someone's direct contacts, where they were on the same ward as someone. We actually reconstructed the whole network of the hospital. And we found that actually looking at how central someone is in that contact network 
and how close they are to every other infection in the hospital, this is a massive source of predictive power. So it's not just about direct contact. We also found a huge amount of information in indirect contact, which is previously missed in outbreak investigations when you're doing something like a standard contact tracing investigation. So we also found quite a few different uh, interesting observations. Um, one was that, so we were limited in the data that we actually had by just looking at patient contact networks. And there's a lot of work that's shown that staff are a big facilitator of some healthcare-associated uh, infections, and in particular, this has been shown in COVID-19. But even without explicitly accounting for this information, what we found is actually there's a lot of implicit information encoded into the patient contact books. And this is very important because staff data is very hard to get, whereas patient data is not as hard to get. So one can get many of the benefits that would be um, that would be available in, say, like staff contact and staff movement by just looking at patient contact networks alone. Now, this isn't the full story. I imagine that um, if you had staff contact networks, this would be even better, but it supports, you know, the case of just using what's available as um, patient movement data. And we also found um, through not just looking at a single site, that um, these content network variables that we were able to pull out, they were generalizable. So we looked at both London and we looked at a validation data set in Geneva. So it supports how robust and generalizable that these potential content network variables are. And I hope supports um, them being investigated more widely for other types of hospital-acquired infections. Um, such that you know we can improve how risk factor modeling is done more broadly. Oh that's that's really great, Ash. Um could you maybe discuss some of these variables a bit more? So um which ones did you find to be the most uh predictive? Yeah, okay, so I would get like too technical. Um but I could really divide the variables that we were able to pull out into into two classes of variables. One would be what you might call a local variable. So it's looking at your immediate neighborhood um, in terms of contact. So who you've been in contact with, these would be like your direct contacts and also the contacts of them. And if your contacts are connected to all of your other contacts, these did hold a lot of predictive power, right? So this is generally what you'd look at in a contact tracing investigation. And if you're in direct contact with someone and then they've been infectious, this was a big predictor. But Importantly, was this point that I mentioned around indirect contact. So another class of variables that we found very predictive was looking at the whole contact network. So these would be things by measuring through degrees of separation, say, so who your friends were in contact with and who they were in contact with, and using that to measure how close are you to any other case of COVID-19 in the hospital. We found that was another very predictive source of information and um, in some cases actually a higher source of information because it not just includes direct contact, but even includes indirect contact. So mediated for other means. I, I think like just to like emphasize that though, um, it's really interesting because when you do a contact tracing investigation, right, especially in hospital and more generally outside of hospital, you're only looking at were two people present in the same location at the same time, but what we've been able to quantify is that it's not just about being the same location as someone, 
So I, I think that's just like a really cool point of the paper and, you know, specific to hospital onset COVID-19, but it could be more general. And I would probably say there's good reason to believe it would be more general. Oh, that, that's, that's really interesting, sort of looking at, uh, I guess, the predictive power of indirect contacts over direct contacts. So what do you think the implications are then for traditional contact tracing? So, I mean, traditional contact tracing is still very effective. Um, I think in the operational sense, um, maybe it's it's not always good to try and look at every possible indirect route of transmission, especially if you have, say, just a clinician that's trying to do these investigations, because the kind of like the number of combinations that, that you'll need to consider is, is too large. Um, but once you start to bring in algorithms, you start to bring in like computational methods, then the implications of these being predictive, um, it does really need to be considered because what we've shown here is that it contains a high amount of predictive power. Where this could be used actually in practice is in contact tracing investigations by stepping away from, you know, individual staff trying to reconstruct these outbreaks, looking at Gantt charts of how patients are moving, but bringing in all that information automatically, as well as the indirect contact, to improve our inferences of which patients are at higher or lower risk of um, acquisition through exposure, be it direct or indirect. Mm. Yeah, that's that's really insightful, Ash. Um, So just to move on to sort of a more, I guess, public health point now, um, you you mentioned before about infection prevention and control guidelines used in in hospitals. And you also talk in in the article about the negative impact COVID-19 has had on these on these guidelines. So, for instance, low bed capacity and limited staff availability. So in what ways do you think different stakeholders like researchers, clinicians and health policymakers can utilize these findings to overcome some of these challenges? And how do you envisage this framework being implemented in practice? Yeah, so really one of the places that this can come in handy is um, in terms of implementing a risk factor model into how patients are managed. Basically, for clinicians, you want to know which patients are at the highest risk of acquisition so that you can prevent onward transmission. And using a framework like this, what you can do is you can direct resources to patients on a given day that have the highest probability of um, acquisition. And then, you know, by means of that, chances of passing it on to other patients. There's also another kind of aspect to what we've done. Um, So a, a big focus, yes, of the paper was looking at bringing contact networks and trying to quantify the risk from contact networks. But what we've really done, we've tried to produce a flexible framework that's able to integrate diverse data and dynamic data. So data that's changing over time. And when using all of this, what we've tried to do is embed this information into a single risk score that clinicians can make fast decisions on. And this is not necessarily just for identifying um, risk factors. So for future research, what we've also done, what might be relevant as well, is we've highlighted the power of bed records alone. But with better granularity, where we think this could be used is if you have other types of contact data. So one of the things that I'm interested in working on at the moment is around RFID tracking of patients. So you can continuously measure where patients are in the hospital and who they're in contact with. So 
this kind of framework that's able to bring in all these like large data sets and complex contact networks could be really insightful when applied to um, this kind of data. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, to know that it can be adapted to integrate other kinds of data sources. That's particularly in sort of this very data-driven world that we're living in. And I guess also then it could be applied in lower resource settings too. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm really interested in um, working with those kind of applications and seeing what aspects of the framework could be applied to those and also maybe what other data types could be available if robust infrastructure isn't available around just patient bed allocations. Um, like my comment about patient movement and patient interactions being a proxy for staff interactions and there being some predictive power there, it would be a really interesting question to say, are there other proxies for contact patterns that you could get that are maybe more generalizable to lower resource settings? and potentially integrating those into a framework like this. That'd be cool. That's great. That's a really, really important point. Um, so just moving on to a limitation, actually, that you highlighted in, in the article, uh, which was that the study period occurred largely before the UK's COVID-19 vaccination rollout. Um, so in what ways do you think vaccination status could impact the predictions? Yeah, <laughs> so... Yeah, you right, rightly said this was a limitation of our study. So at the start of the pandemic, vaccination status, it wasn't um, something to, to worry about so much because most people were susceptible. There wasn't a high amount of the population that had previously been exposed. So it wasn't something that needed to be considered. But as we come into an environment where COVID-19 is more endemic, there's been a large successful vaccination rollout, especially in the UK and many other countries, then someone's risk of acquisition is dependent on how susceptible they are, which is you know, determined by vaccinations or if they've previously had COVID-19. So having this information, yes, it's, it's very relevant. And I'm sure if we had it, we'd be able to increase the predictive performance of our model. So one of the things that we actually, we actually saw in our study was the validation that we had in the UK that happened at a later point in time when vaccination rates were much higher and there was a high background immunity from previous exposure, that actually the performance of our model significantly decreased. Although there was still a lot of predictive power, um, especially coming from the content network, um, that there was this drop off in performance and we didn't have any information on vaccination status. And we believe, and obviously it requires future work and validation, that one of the reasons for this drop off in performance was because of this heterogeneity in the vaccination rates as compared to our previous training and testing period. But going forward, it'd be great. And I, I'd suggest anyone that's trying to operationalize this very important to bring in information about vaccination status and um, previous positive tests. Okay, that's interesting. And in, in the paper, you highlight the alpha and delta variants. Do you think the drop-off could also be linked to the existence of other variants? Yes, that's, that's an interesting point. And the differences in transmissibility could affect the risk from contact exposure. So I'd say yes, and it would probably require, again, more investigation. And um, I'd be very interested to see if someone else is going to look at that. 
Fantastic. Um, so finally then, what questions do you feel remain unanswered and what should be the priorities for future research in this area? Some of which I think you might have covered, but particularly in a, a post-pandemic era. Yeah. Okay, so for COVID-19, um, I think it's a case of how to operationalize this because I think what we've shown here in two different contexts, one that was UK-based and one actually outside of the UK, is that there's a lot of predictive power in treating patient interactions like this and going beyond just looking at direct contacts. So the biggest question for me directly from this study and for COVID-19 is really how to operationalize this. Now, that has a number of different complications because, you know, the setting, it's, it's changing, the background prevalence is very high. If you're deploying a model like this now versus at the start of the pandemic, there's going to be a lot more triggering of, you know, who to screen based on there just being a very large amount of um, community cases coming in and causing you know, cases of hospital onset COVID-19. So really, one of the questions is, is where to set the thresholds around based on these predictive risk models, where to screen, who to screen, and who to cohort and trying to balance them in ways such that they're not overwhelming the resources of a hospital, they're not costing large amounts of money, and trying to say, you know, how can we say we want to screen this many patients to avert future cases? Um, but this all requires future work and probably prospective study that we're really interested in doing right now. And moreover, one of the other things that I'm really interested in um, and I could see this framework setting the groundwork for is really not just looking at acquisition, but trying to also balance these frameworks, both with the acquisition risk and with the severity of cases. So I think there's already been lots of research that's looking at prediction of severity or severe COVID-19 infection, but trying to bring in both of these sources of information as a way to prioritize patients for screening such that we both consider the risk of acquisition based on being in you know, particular areas of the content network, but also based on acquisition, how likely are those patients to then develop severe cases and cost the hospitals even more money? Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Ash. It was really great to hear your summary of the study and also the implications of the framework and the findings. So thank you so much for your time. Yep, really enjoyed being here. You can read Ashley Miles' paper online now at The Lancet Digital Health. Thank you for listening.